You're listening to Megiddo Radio. Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megiddoradio.com. That's megiddoradio.com. Good evening, everyone. Welcome. This is Paul Flynn with Megiddo Radio for the 1st of April, 2020. Thank you all for tuning in. Extremely sorry. We're about going over an hour late than I anticipated, and I'm probably going to change the schedule. Probably to something later, probably half nine. Uh, I think that's achievable. We had a um, our church. We had a kind of a, I don't know what you call it, a kind of a Zoom prayer meeting where we uh, got together and... Uh, um, took a little longer. We try to get our children to be involved in as much as possible with church life. That try to teach them to, to pray and every everything else. Um, they're only five years old, so um, we have two small twins. And uh, ask for your prayers as well at this time. Um, I know this is a case of a lot of parents around the world, especially those who have children. There's a lot of a lot of parents around the world with breathing problems. I know this coronavirus, it has um, this kind of dry cough and high temperature fever. But one of the most common things, complications, is usually a form of, I suppose, pneumonia or something like that, where people have to be put on ventilators. That's why the United States um, and most countries around the world are now looking for ventilators so um um our children are they are asthmatic now it's probably like one of those ones that they might grow out of when they're about seven but as of right now they're still on inhalers and um uh, that's a concern for a lot of parents around the world i know there hasn't been a massive amount of children who have been hospitalized even but still we don't know a ton about this, especially with we have uh, more and more reports coming out that uh, we don't know a ton from China. And I think we're realizing the world is realizing that more and more that the numbers are probably bogus. Uh, Bloomberg came out with a story today to that effect. So um, it's a concerning time. And look, if you've got parents who are over their 70s, uh, we need to we need to re- remember each other in prayer. And not only that, there's also tragic cases that are going on, not just with people with coronavirus and having complications from that. You know, the death t- statistics and the mortality rates don't tell everything. There's a lot of people who will end up in hospital for two to three weeks and will have to fight this thing for weeks on end. They're not going to end up in the statistics. Okay, they'll be put down as recovered, but um, what that recovered will look like and et cetera and so on, this is not something to be taken lightly. And, um, you know, we need to remember people in your prayers. Um, remember my parents, they're in their 70s. I suppose a lot of people who are listening have got similar things that are going on. Just before, in case I forget... Um, my de- uh, the denomination, our family, are uh, a part of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of Ireland. Tomorrow, we're having a day of prayer, fasting and prayer, 
And I'm just going to read a little bit about this um, to you, just to, if you're so able. I know different people are different circumstances, especially people who are mining kids and all that, but this is a message from our our moderator. And he writes, um, this is our moderator at the moment. We have different moderators every year, for those of you not aware of Presbyterianism. Um, at the moment, Mark Lockridge is our uh, moderator. And um, he says, Dear friends across the denomination, these are strange, bewildering times which we live. How, how suddenly our world can be brought to a standstill by COVID-19. Drastic measures um, have had to be taken and everybody's life has been radically impacted. We have no sense of what the long-term outcomes will be personally, socially, emotionally, economically, or a host of other areas. So um, in this letter, uh, he calls for us to come together in prayer. And um, so I long for us to come out of this testing time stronger as individuals, stronger as churches, and stronger as a denomination recounting. And look, anybody can join in with this, okay? In your homes tomorrow, we're having this day of prayer. We're counting how God has become more precious to us and how we have seen God at work in us, in our families and our communities. Let me urge each of you to respond in five ways, to trust, to pray, to grow, to care, and to witness. And um, look, you can read this. This has been published on the rpglobalalliance.org page. I also imagine that our own denomination's website page also has this as well. And um, so Thursday the 2nd of April as a denomination day of prayer and fasting, um, when you're, you say you've never fasted before, it may start off small. I'll be honest, it's not it's something I need to grow in as well. You know, um, maybe start off, if it's the first time you've ever done it, maybe just fast by missing one meal or two if you're, if you're so able. And it, it kind of depends as well. I think it depends because sometimes people are mothers and they're very, very busy with also fathers or whatever else. Um, you could be a farmer and you might not be able to do it. You might have to milk the cows in the morning and in the evening. So, but perhaps, I'll just give you the farmer scenario. Maybe you have, maybe you have to, maybe you can, in the middle of the day, you can fast. I mean, this is something we do before God. This is not something to flash or to show off or say, hey, I did so many hours or whatever. This is before God, and this is something we're commanded to do, to fast and to pray, especially at extraordinary times like this. this if we're not going to do it at times like this, when are we going to do so? Now, for our devotional today, um, for those of you not aware, those of you who listened to the program for a while, we're going to start off the, the program with a psalm, and today is Psalm 3, and we're, how long we're going to be in quarantine, we do not know. Again, if anybody's tuning in now, hopefully the, the program will be at half nine from now on. But um, if you could let people know, because I, <laughs> I, I, I dare say that probably a lot of people don't know that this is even on right now, but I digress. Um, Psalm 3 says this, um, and we're, we'll just lead in a word of prayer that the Lord would guide us to learn from Psalm 3, a psalm which describes David as he fled from his son, Absalom, pursuing him. 
Father in heaven, we pray, Lord, that you would bless us and guide us. May your face shine upon us and help us to gain encouragement in these difficult times. Oh, Lord, may you bless each one listening and those who will join later and give them blessings. Lord, it is such a difficult time when many of us cannot meet for fellowship. Oh, how we miss time with your people. But Lord, we pray that you would guide us and bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. We're not going to be commenting on every single thing in Psalm 3, but again, um, we'll go through some of the things that Lord willing will bless us and guide us and um, hopefully encourage us in the challenges which we all face. Psalm 3, Lord, how they have increased to trouble me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many they are who... Hmm, it's getting a bit fuzzy there. Excuse me. Many are they who rise up against me, and many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. Sorry there, there's a bit of a hum there. And I'm trying to charge something, if in case anybody's wondering, and, um, ooh, there I go. <laughs> I tell you, um, I don't have an engineer. Um, one day, one day. Okay, so verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cried to the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousand people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Selah. Now, in this psalm, again, the the context, some of the psalms we don't exactly know when they were set, but it does help to know in any passage of scripture, the historical context, think of books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, but some parts of scripture we may not know. Here we do. Here we're told that it is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And um, this is where... Absalom gained a position of prominence, and basically there was rebellion, and this must have been an incredible, incredibly difficult time for David. How they have increased who troubled me. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who say of me, there is no help for him in God. Now, in our current situation, it doesn't necessarily mean now, this can be, honestly, that we're in such uncertain times, we don't know where things may go, social unrest or whatever else may come. But we will, there will come times when we will face enemies and people will rise up against us. Many are they who rise up against me. Many are they who save me. There is no help for him in God. It's kind of a mocking tone from the, from the enemies who rise up against. And David, as well, we have to remember when we're going to the Psalms, is a type of Christ who points towards Christ. Christ being our ultimate King David, but you, O Lord, are a shield for me. The Lord is our protection. The Lord is the one who will help us. 
Now, that does not mean in times like this that we can be kind of glib about the being wise and the things that we're warned to be cautious in in, in terms of the coronavirus or wherever else it is. But spiritually and otherwise as well, the Lord is sovereign over all things. You, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. I cried for the Lord with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. And tomorrow, I pray that you will join us in prayer, in setting aside some comforts, and go before the Lord. I remember, interesting kind of aside, I remember for years just thinking that prayer and fasting, it always, years ago, it always seemed a bit strange to me. I was like, okay, well, Fasting, okay, I get it. And you kind of have this thing in your head that it's bad for you or whatever. Um, a lot of people are more and more discovering this more and more, you know, fad diets that start all the time, intermittent fasting, but that there's more and more evidence that seems to suggest it's it's good for our health. And it's not even just Christians who do it, but I suppose I'd put it like this. Man was not made for grazing. We weren't made to be constantly feeding. We didn't always have a fridge. There was a time in history, by the way, that there was no fridge. And I, I suspect most of history, there was probably times when we only ate twice a day. I'm no expert on this, but I would just say this. We should be able to forego, at least, maybe not the whole day tomorrow, but at least for part of it, at least for part of it. I lay down and slept. So the Lord hears us in our cries. And there's a certain sense in, in our cries in when we don't have the comforts of food, when we have a, a, a kind of a sense of a hunger, we know what that means, because at that time we'll be hungry. A sense of a hunger and thirsting after God. I lay down and slept. I woke for God, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who set themselves against me all around. And this talk about fear. The more we trust in God, the more we want to be afraid. There's a healthy fear, by the way, of things. There, you know, if. If your child is in the middle of a road and it's a busy road and you don't have that kind of reflexive action of fear that you jump out and pull your child away from that, well, that's not exactly wise. But we're not living in terror. There's, of course, a healthy fear. It's kind of like a respect for things. But we won't be afraid of our enemies. No matter what they do to us, no matter what may social unrest may come, whatever may whatever may come, I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. And that must have been until it was a terrible time for David when he penned these words under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. His own son rises up against him. Somebody he trusts. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Again, 
in our prayers, there ought to be sense of holy desperation, not in a kind of a glib, like you're having a chat with your buddy. We hopelessly, we, we depend upon God. We need God or else we have no hope. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all the enemies on the cheekbone and broken the teeth of the ungodly. Sounds very violent, doesn't it? You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. What is that referring to? What is the enemy's weapons? And it uses this in other Psalms as well, the breaking the teeth. These are the weapons. You've broken their weapons they would use against us. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And there's a certain sense in which the psalm is, yes, temporal deliverance, salvation in that sense, but also in the ultimate sense, of course, in both senses. The Lord can deliver us here and now. He's our only hope. But in eternity, will we stand before God in our own works, in our righteous deeds, our so-called righteous deeds, our, our greatest deeds are but filthy rags. If we go before the Lord, will we meet up to his righteous standard of the Ten Commandments, summarized in the Ten Commandments? Have we loved God every moment of every day with perfect love? Have we loved our neighbor perfectly as ourselves? If the answer is no, for a single second of, of your existence and you're going before God, you're in trouble. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing is upon your people. Your blessing, God's blessing, is upon his people. And His pe that blessing of salvation, of knowing Christ, being in union with Christ, and that when that when God looks upon his son and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, he delights in his children because of Christ, the blessing, the blessings of almighty God being upon his people. Thy blessing, Lord, is upon thy people. And again, I would encourage you, and you can go online. You don't even have to order a Psalter, at least when you're starting. Go get a metrical version, the 1650 Psalter, for example. Get, get the metrical version of Psalm 3 and sing that. And everybody can sing Amazing Grace. I imagine so. Everybody knows that tune. Everybody can think of that tune in their head. I'm not very good with tunes for Psalms. My wife is usually the person who remembers most of them. She's a lot more musical than I am. And, um, but that's the one I remember, usually most of the time, if I'm stuck, that tune to Amazing Grace. And if you get the 1650 metrical Psalter, which is, I believe it's common meter, you can sing that. And what an encouragement it is. Not the words of men. Of course, it is been penned by David, but by the Spirit of God. And when you sing those psalms to God in these most difficult times, what will it do for your soul? I think it's one of the reasons why the church struggles so much in the face of opposition. I think, in fact, I know 
that the Psalms, if they're sung in our homes right these days, they will bless us, encourage us in ways we cannot imagine. You may not be at the point where you think, hmm, I think only Psalms should be used in worship. That's the position of our own denomination. That's the position I came to years ago. I may do some programs. on. I've done programs on that in the past. A couple of years ago, actually, it's been, but I probably should do one again. But what if, at this point, so you're not quite there yet, why not sing the Psalms? Yeah, I've come across people that just seem to be very reluctant to sing the Psalms. What is more encouraging than the words of Almighty God to be sung? And this is, this is the hymn book that they had in the first century. This is the hymn book of the early church. They sung the Psalms. There was a time, actually, to be in the church in order to be a bishop. You needed to have the, the 150 Psalms memorized. I think that was in about the mid-5th century. We are singing things today. We're out of kilter. With people talk about the early church and everything, they sung the Psalms. I haven't seen anybody disputes that. Anyway, so we need to get on to our topic, which is blessings which come out of crisis, uh, which can come out of crisis, which often do come out of crisis. And there's a certain sense in which some of the greatest blessings from the church or for the church come from times of crisis. Oddly enough, I do not have a Westminster Confession of Faith in front of me, but I digress. Um, in most, a lot of denominations, a lot of Presbyterian denominations, Reformed denominations, not all, I mean, some are Dutch Reformed, some will use the Belgic Confession, but I haven't looked up a survey, but how many churches around the world use the Westminster Standards as their confessional text? How many churches around the world, even if they don't use the Westminster Confession of Faith or the, or the Catechisms, how many of them will quote question one of the Shorter Catechism? What is, what is the chief end of man? It's one of the few things that people have memorized to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Imagine church history without that blessing from the church. Again, I say this, the, the influence of the Westminster Confession of Faith and the other documents that go with it go far beyond even Reformed Orthodoxy, go far beyond even confession or confessional churches that used the Westminster Confession of Faith. It was a massive influence later on in the, six, in the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, which is basically a modified form of the Westminster Confession. And what in what context did it come out of? In what context did... Was everything going swimmingly in the church? In What was happening in the 1640s in England? 
something fairly significant happened in 1642. The English Civil War. We're going to just, we're not going to go directly into the English Civil War for a second, but think of the, the chaos that happened in the 1640s in England. So one of the reasons it's such a hard period of time to study historically. And one of the reasons I think that there's so many different views on, on different people. Give an example, Oliver Cromwell. Use his name in one context, people think he's amazing. Use him in another context, think he's like Hitler, um, which is frankly over the top. Um, and then where I fall down, which was good military leader, Yes, things I would disagree with him on, um, but you have to realize it was a war context, and a lot of times he was fighting with the royalists. Okay, there was a war, the English Civil War, but it was basically a war between Parliament and the royal, the crown. And at that time, you had this war between King Charles the First, who was tyrannical, and the parliament, which got more and more frustrated with, a lot of it was religious, Episcopalianism, the, the forcing of uh, their policy, polity and everything else upon the church. And a lot of parliament and a lot, like, were just really congregationalists. They wanted independency and things like that. But when it erupted in 1642, both the royalists, crown of uh, Charles I and the Parliament, both of them wanted the support of the Scots in the North. And I've only begun to just realize what a blessing it is to study Scottish church history. If you're ever going to say, I'm going to focus on one period of time and I'm going to obsess about it, Scottish church history. From, I'm not just talking about Knox, but all the way through. I think it, it's not really studied enough. Probably, you know, Presbyterian circles it is. To get a context of what was happening that led up to that chaos, out of which the Westminster Assembly, to an extent, was this. How do we unify the kingdoms? How do we come behind a confession of faith? There was a desire, because of the chaos, they wanted one church. They wanted one confession of faith. And that's ultimately what the Westminster Confession of Faith was. Let's go, let's reverse a little bit, and let's go back to some of the things we were talking about in the last program. 1638. And I'm going to really look at this largely through the lens of Alexander Henderson. I, was the project I did in college through there recently. It was such a blessing to go through it. Um, this is the lens by which I have studied through. There's other lenses which you could study through because there's so much going on. And you'll often get good men who are on either side during this whole back and forth and this crisis. And this was an era of crisis. R remind yourselves of what was happening in Scotland in 1638. We're reversing back a bit now from the English Civil War. And in 1638, two major things happened in Scotland. Earlier in the year, there was a signing of the National Covenant, in which the nation 
basically in its more simplest sense, there might be some historians listening to this and kind of going, mm, he's a bit wronger. But in the simplest sense, the nation was saying this. They were sick of the, the Articles of Perth. One of the most egregious ones that really drove them crazy was the idolatrous kneeling before the sacrament in the Lord's table. They really didn't like that as well as observing Christmas and Easter, and there was a couple of other things as well. There was five Articles of Perth, which dated back to 1618. And this was being forced on the church. It had been there since 1618, but James is more calculating, more patient. Charles I, his son, the king, was not. And uh, him, and with Archbishop Laud beside him, were tyrannical. And they weren't willing to be play the long game like James and Archbishop Spotswood were. They were more in, it was a lot more obvious, it was a lot more top-down, and it was a lot more forceful. It brought the church out of slumber. Hey, and this might happen today. This might happen today. Stuff that is happening today may awaken the church to some of the greatest blessings it may ever see. Who knows? I am not saying that they maybe will, maybe it won't. Maybe there'll be a revival of this. Who knows? Here's the thing. Is God not in control? If we don't remind ourselves that God's in control, we're going to feel helpless. We're going we're gonna to be not sleeping right. Um, fear is going to dictate our lives. We were looking at that psalm earlier. But not being afraid. But not being afraid. Can I be like, I'm not saying I am some person who never has any fear. I'm, we all fear. We all fear. I don't know what's going to happen with this coronavirus thing. I, can I just say this? Don't expect it to happen, finish anytime soon, humanly speaking. Now, can the Lord turn this thing? Of course. Of course he can. It's all... But humanly speaking, from the data, purely from a scientific point of view, there's no reason to think that it's not going to last for months, at least. And I say that just to prepare you. There's a lot of desperation, a lot of articles being spread around about cures and all that. Just wait upon the Lord and be patient. And use this time to spend more time with the Lord. But in 1638, in the Church of Scotland, the National Covenant was signed earlier in the year. And, I mean, th that would be a wonderful thing, wouldn't it? People are very worried today about what happens if the government doesn't give back the powers it's taking in order to battle coronavirus. Legitimate concern. Now, my point of view is this. Right now, they're doing it for the good of society. It's nothing to do with persecution. May that turn into persecution in the future? Sure. But right now, I think because it is a love for neighbor, we should do it for the good of society. Now, that may change in the future. That may change to being tyranny, in the proper sense of being tyranny, biblical tyranny, in the sense of which it is open war against the word of God. That's the tyranny that the Scottish Covenanters were battling in 1638, and in which they 
signed the National Covenant, covenanting themselves to God. Alexander Henderson and Archibald Warson both signed, not both, they both wrote this National Covenant. Later in the year, and we dealt with that a lot more on the last program, if you want to listen to that. Later in that year, there was the Glasgow Assembly. And a lot of things happened in the Glasgow Assembly in 1638, the first free assembly of the Scottish Church in some 20 years. And at that was a representative of the King, the High Commission. And the High Commissioner very much questioned the legality of the whole thing. And for this reason, the King at the time was like, well, no, no, I pick who the moderator is. The moderator, for those of you not aware of Presbyterianism, the moderator is basically, he's not in charge, but he's in, in terms of the debate, he doesn't participate in the debate, but he is the one who, if, if somebody's talking for too long, they'll stop him and he'll move the conversation along. He's there to basically maintain peace. He's like a chairman. There's no hierarchy in Presbyterianism. But, there will be a moderator, and a moderator is very, very important. And at that time, because of the skills Alexander Henderson had, and he had the kind of unifying experience, and he, he was very good at well, moderating, <laughs> that's why he was picked. Now, some of them didn't want him to be moderator, basically because of his debating skills that were so good. But it's very important, okay, we have late 1638, we have the, the first Glasgow Assembly. This is a synod, this is a church court. The king wants to preserve episcopacy in the land. He wants the bishops to remain there. In Scotland at the time, there was these bishops that were forced upon the church by the king. And obviously he wanted that to continue because he saw any removal of this as a challenge to his authority. The divine right of kings. Henderson said this, we obliged, we're obliged to the loyalty and obedience of our king. There is nothing due to kings and princes in matters ecclesiastical. Now remember, that's in matters ecclesiastical. The king here was trying to tell them who and who not to discipline, etc. and so on. And it was meddling in the affairs of the church. But Henderson was very respectful to the king's representative, the Marquis of Hamilton. But eventually there came a crossroads. And I think we got up to the, about this point the last day. And eventually the king's representative left. He was frustrated. And the king, the king's representative was very clear, dissolve the meeting. And then there was a, a very much crossroad. They were being very respectful, aiming to be very respectful. And they wanted him there. They wanted, a, they wanted his cooperation. It wasn't an anti-stay. And they, these were not moral men, but they wanted the state involved, not to make the decisions, but to aid in the promotion of true religion, but not to in, impose or interfere in matters ecclesiastical. Basically, they wanted him there. They wanted to call the king to repentance. They wanted to 
They wanted a Christian king, somebody who was going to bow the knee before Christ, kiss the son, lest he be angry at the end of Psalm 2. They wanted that. But what were they going to do? Were they going to listen to the king when he was telling him to dissolve the court or keep going? What do you think they did? They kept going. And this, this series of events basically led to a number of wars and eventually destabilized and led really in a lot of ways to the English Civil War that ensued and led to the necessity in the eyes of many across the land of the Westminster Confession of Faith to unify Scotland and England under one religion. It didn't last very long, of course. I think people will realize. But what blessings came out of it, we'll get onto that in a second. Anyway, so on, on Hamilton leaves the assembly, Henderson says this, all who are present know how this assembly was inducted and what power we allow to our sovereign in matters ecclesiastic. But although we have knowledge the power of the king's for convening assemblies and their and their power in them, yet that must not derogate from Christ's right, for he hath given warrant to convocate assemblies, whether magistrates consent or not. Very much a line in the sand. And what did they go on to do? They went on to, they excommunicated eight, eight of these bishops. Call it the, and it wasn't just because they disagreed with church government or anything like that. It was, these were immoral men, and they were disciplined over these things, and they were told to repent, called to repent. Also during this assembly, the, the Articles of Perth from 1618, we're talking about in the last program, again, we were mentioning about kneeling before the sacrament, they were declared to be unlawful. And all the Popish and Antichrist errors which were introduced during the years following 1606, this was a whole creeping episcopacy that went right back for many years, sadly under James I. And again, there was a lot of disappointment by the Puritans. They thought he was a Presbyterian. And they kind of realized over time that he wasn't. A lot of things were gotten rid of. The Book of Canons, Liturgy, Book of Ordination, the Court of High Commission, etc. And uh, all corrupt assemblies. It was corrupt assemblies and interference and everything else prior to 1618. I mean, if you read the minutes from the 1618 assembly, they were just told what to do, and that was it, from what I can see, at least, the minutes that I've read from the 1618. Um, and there was nothing then. But they cleared, anyway, from 1606 to 16, null and void, because there was, they were unlawful, and there was no jurisdiction there. Anyway, so was, that set off the king. The king wasn't, obviously wasn't happy. There was a couple, there was... The English invaded Scotland because of this. This was largely to do with church government. Power. Who is at the head of the church of state? And the Church of England still to this day says that the, the king or queen is the head of the church. The Westminster Confession of Faith says otherwise, which is biblical, that there's only one head of the church, not the Pope of Rome, not the King, Queen, or anybody else, but the Lord Jesus Christ. Henderson became a big national leader. He hated the limelight, from what I can see in the records, and massively unifying 
well thought of by many. And he was in a kind of a place called Lucas we were talking about. And he went, eventually, he was, there was pressure put on him and he ended up in Edinburgh because they wanted him more at the center. He didn't want to initially, but they all kind of more or less voted that he would do that. And he ended up at St. Giles, which is the pulpit once occupied by John Knox. You might have heard of him. Um, so Henderson becomes this national leader. Very interesting, actually, for my American friends who are listening and who would be big fans of the Second Amendment. I'm actually a big fan of the Second Amendment. I do believe that it is good for citizenry to have for defense, to be able to protect itself. Not to be obsessed with guns, but to pr protect itself. If you, you know, like if you go to a Swiss home, you go into their basement, they're packing heat, it reduces crime. I'm firmly convinced of that. Now, you also need the morality as well. I'm not saying in a complete vacuum, but I'm not against, I'm all for law-abiding citizens for having weapons and stuff like that. But it's interesting, you know, Alexander Henderson, back in, I think it was 1641, wrote the following pamphlet, The Instructions for Defensive Arms. And he basically, biblically and otherwise, defended the use of arm, armed resistance against the king at that time. And he based it on this. This is very different from the American um, War of Independence. And it'd be wrong to think that the Covenanter struggle was like that. It wasn't just about religious liberty or anything like that. Blanket religious liberty. It was about Christ's crown rights. It was about freedom for true saving religion. It was not for anything else. I don't know if I'm peaking. If anybody could let me know if if the volume is okay or anything like that. I don't know. It sounds peaking in my head, but anyway. Um, so, defensive arms. Now, when the Scots resisted, it wasn't just one person in rebellion against the crown. Um, it was very much... You see, in the case of Scotland, the nobles were also, okay, to varying degrees, but they were also in support of Presbyterianism and against the Episcopalian encroachment. Of course, there was the odd exception here and there, but largely this tyrannical reign of Charles I was not just against the church, it was also against the lower magistrates. So it was a... Henderson was arguing that the reign of Charles I was in violation of the Fifth Commandment. The Fifth Commandment is not just about honoring your mother and your father. If you read through the, the larger catechism, what it talks about the Fifth Commandment, it talks about inferiors to superiors, superiors to inferiors, and also among equals. There's all sorts of relationships talked about in the Fifth Commandment. I have to remember, the Ten Commandments are a summary. They're a summary. And you need to go throughout the Bible to see it in its totality. Um, one of the greatest books I've ever read, The Ten Commandments by Thomas Watson, I found that book. 
probably the closest book, one of the closest books I've seen to being life-changing, that and Calvin's Institutes. Calvin's Institutes changed how I looked at Reformed theology. I started off reading it in a very... I was trying to look for things to expose. This was years ago now. I was still living in Italy at the time. And I started reading Calvin's Institutes and I realized it was devotional, was not boring, was not dry or anything else like that. It was wonderful, soul-enriching, etc. and so on. It changed how I looked at Reformed theology. And when I read Thomas Watson, I changed how I viewed the law. I suppose crystallized to be a better thing. It removed a lot, in a very simple way. I've read most things that Thomas, there's one or two books I haven't read by Thomas Watson. You can't go wrong with a Thomas Watson book. People get scared about reading the Puritans. You know, they think because it's from the 17th century or whenever that, oh, this is going to be difficult. Not with Thomas Watson. Serious. Um, and to be honest, okay, some people like John Owen were incredibly complex and difficult, but we need the basic truths, honestly. And, and the Puritans were excellent at that. The Puritans were excellent at that. Very thorough, but very, very clear. Anyway. So he's arguing based on the fifth commandment. So I'd encourage you to get books on, on, on I suppose they're called books in ethics today, really. Um, the tyranny was not just against the church, it was also against the lower magistrates. So I'm just going to, I'm going to read here what I just said in a project based on it. Henderson was clear to state that it was not for private individuals, but in extraordinary cases where the king had become tyrannical, against even lower magistrates in land. In this case, in Scotland, the nobles were in support of the Covenanters in the National Covenant. Remember, the Covenanters included the nobles, you know, in that sense. He also saw that the defense in terms of a battle between Christ and Antichrist, the Pope of Rome. So this is where he saw this battle against Antichrist, this encroachment. From about 1639, 1640, there was what we'll call the Bishop's Wars. It was the first Bishop's War and the second Bishop's War. And at one point during all of this, the, the Scottish invaded England. There wasn't many casualties. Um, and I mean, this is, they were very clear that they weren't to be rebellious against the authority, but they, they saw it as necessary defense against tyranny. There's a difference. Um, and we, we need to be very, very careful when we come to those conclusions. I believe they're right to do it, by the way. I do think there comes a time, but it's always extraordinary, and it's not nearly as much as you might think. Is it easy to, to be right on these things? No, you need to be really in prayer and guided by the Lord in these things. But I do believe there comes times when defensive arms are necessary. And Alexander Henderson, he's, his works are largely not, a, not available anymore. There's only one thing I've ever been able to find, which is a collection of his sermons and prayers. Um, you can get on lulu.com where they do print-on-demand books. It's the only place I've been able to get it. So I have just fallen in love with studying things about Henderson. I'm just, I tell you, I'm just a bit obsessed about it and I love it. Um, there's more stuff that I... I'm going to rec um, this is the last program I'm going to do in Henderson. I would like more people to study Alexander Henderson. 
and get interested in his life and hopefully maybe somehow some of his pamphlets can reemerge. He wrote pamphlets. He didn't write tomes like Rutherford or David Dixon did, who were you know, his contemporaries of the time, or George Gillespie or whoever else it was, which is a pity. Um, but that was his great strength. He wrote pamphlets. Some people are just great at that. Some people are very pithy and to the point, very clear. And he actually gathered national support, telling them the importance of this covenanting with God. And anyway, Henderson was, during this time, during this, he was the chaplain to the Scottish army. And he was one of the negotiators at the, uh, from the Treaty of Ripon. Which he signed, which was signed also by Charles the First. So, massive influence Henderson had on education. He was the rector of Edinburgh University. An interesting little thing, which is making me really, definitely, want to focus more on biblical languages. He placed a big emphasis on Greek, Hebrew. He actually. Um, he was instrumental in the hiring of the first professor in Scotland dedicated to Hebrew, Julius Otto. Otto was a Jew from Vienna who converted to Christianity, and uh, Henderson was big on, he urged the hiring of top professors from the continent to a gifted and specialist areas of biblical learning. So it seems he was massively influential. It's amazing that it wasn't, um, a, there were probably people who obviously knew Hebrew before that, but the first professor in Scotland dedicated to Hebrew, Julius Otto. Um, and then there was the attempt by Charles I to corrupt Henderson himself. He wanted him to become the permanent moderator. And the, the danger of permanent moderatorship is you be, basically become like a bishop. What seemed to happen in the early church was that seemed to have happened, that there was a person who became the moderator, and it's usually maybe the most influential person. You always find one person who's a bit more popular and a bit more networky than some ministers and um, has more influences, more sway. And the danger is, if he's always the moderator, the influence and gravitates towards him, and he becomes like a little bit like a quasi-bishop. Um, or at least that can be the danger. Um, Henderson was influential, actually he preached to uh, Charles I, and as wicked as Charles I was, he preached to him, and one time he rebuked him for violating the Sabbath. He was on the golf course on one Sabbath day, and um, the king actually ended up going to worship in the evening. No, there's no, I don't think he was a converted man, but um, Henderson was godly, and he wanted the king to to turn to God, and they, they wanted a godly king. And Henderson was also conducted family worship morning and evening in the royal palace. The reformers were very, very, very much pushing the importance of family worship. And brethren, at this time, we need to be in family worship more than before. When we can't meet because of this coronavirus, this... this Modern day plague, we need to be in worship before God. So now up to 1642 and uh, the English Civil War. Long and the short of it, there was this battle between the Parliament and the King. 
and they wanted both of them wanted the Scots. And in response to the Parliament's plea to Scotland, they appealed for a national covenant. Now, in hindsight, how just how committed the English were, big question mark over that. But they they did sign the Solemn League and Covenant. We we mentioned I've mentioned this probably several programs. It's one of the things that would separate the Reformed Presbyterians. We whether it's the RPCNA in North America and Australia, Japan now, in I think in other countries there's some influence as well, especially in Scotland. It began um, the Ireland, mostly in Northern Ireland, but there are also congregations in the Republic of Ireland. We believe that the Solemn League Covenant is still binding and the nation needs to return to its covenant oath and not the kind of watered-down settlement that kind of arose a couple of decades later with the victory of William of Orange and um, the Revolution Settlement of 1688, which basically made Presbyterianism just one form of many. But here's what the Solemn League says. We noblemen, barons, knights, gentlemen, citizens, burgesses, Ministers of the gospel, commons of all sorts in the kingdom of Scotland, England and Ireland, all levels of society, church, government, etc. and so on, pledged this. And being of one reformed religion, having before our eyes the glory of God and the advancement of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The three kingdoms, as, as they were back then, there was no united kingdom back then, the three kingdoms of England, Scotland, and Ireland covenanted before God. You might say, well, that'll never happen again. Why not? Why will it not happen? Maybe out of this crisis, perhaps, the nations, maybe more nations, will turn to God and covenant with him. Of course, crises are horrible to go through, but we'll, let's remind ourselves of this. Often, some of the greatest blessings in church history comes out of them. Often. It's not always that way, though. Now, God is always at work. God always has his purpose. God delivers and protects his people according to his own sovereign hand and will and his care and provision. But let us have hope, brethren, for what may come. Again, Henderson felt betrayed by the English. This is not a kick on the English or anything like that, who signed the covenant in private letters. He expressed sadness that he felt that the signing of the covenant because they only wanted the Scottish to help against the king. Again, I, I bring up that thing earlier about Cromwell. I mean, <laughs> there's either like Cromwell good, Cromwell bad, and there's um, 
the COVID interview, which is like heavily critical of him, but I'm not too. I don't think that they say he was an unbeliever or anything like that. Just they disagreed with him, and they saw some of the things he did heavily. Be a lot of the testimonies for a long time afterwards, because Cromwell heavily disagreed with the Covenanters. Now, the Westminster Assembly this is in a sense in which is a, is a response to the Solomon Covenant. What is the Reformed religion? How do we unify? There's a mistake we can make with the Westminster Assembly and think that, aha, they were all Presbyterians, they all believed the same thing, they all... No. No. They weren't even all Presbyterians. Yes, Presbyterianism was the one that was settled upon. But they could have just as easily ended up being independents or anything else like that. Of course, okay. There was... The, the assembly definitely stirred towards it and voted for that. But there was a lot of debating that took place. In the Westminster Assembly, obviously there was Presbyterians, but it was also independents and moderate Episcopalians. They wanted some kind of a moderate form, not quite Erastianism, not quite state over, but some kind of a modified form. And so there was heated debate. So don't be very careful what the people say. You know, somebody will have a weird view today and they'll go, aha, somebody in the Westminster Assembly said this. Are you going to criticize him? Just because he's a Westminster divine did not mean that everything that they held to or ever published was perfectly in line with the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's just not realistic. Okay, a lot of them did. Henderson was massively influential until his death in, in 1646. He didn't see the end of the assembly. He died. But there was a lot of debating, a lot of heated debating that would take place. What was going to be the confession for the three kingdoms? Now, in a sense, it really only got used in Scotland. In England has been largely independent for hundreds and hundreds of years. I'm not saying there's no Presbyterian churches there, but largely more, much more independent than its Scottish neighbors. Henderson, again, sadly forgotten. He said, why are you going on with Henderson? He wrote, I don't know if he was a sole author, but he certainly was either the main author, he may have been the sole author of the Directory of Public Worship, which is based upon what the Scottish church did, based upon... This worked the government and order of the Church of Scotland. And trial, tribulation, difficulty, war, disagreement. You know, we don't like it, do we? You know, when we're debating, you know, and you got brethren, you love them dearly, and there's this major point of doctrine. That's not easy to take, and it took its toll on Henderson. Actually, really, really wore it down. I really, really wore Henderson down. I'll just see here if I've got any reference to the, the toll it took. I, I mean, it may have led to the decline. It seems to have led to the decline of Henderson's health in those previous years. 
wondering how exactly how committed some like there were some Presbyterians, of course, and but there were some who were not. Some were come, you know, they were quite happy to subscribe to it, but there were moderate Episcopalians. And it took somebody like a Henderson, who was a, a vastly unifying experience, or unifying experience, a unifying influence on there's a place for the fiery men like Knox. The Lord used the mightily Martin Luther's and all them kind of, but then there comes a more mild mannered, we could say maybe a bit more. He was the, the perfect man at the time. No, he wasn't perfect. Obviously he had, he had, he was a sinner just like you and I. But it's such a, a shame that his, his life, apart from, look, there's some works, uh, the Scots Worthies published by Banner of Truth, John Howey, and again, it's one of many biographies that were written. Um, the Memoirs of the Westminster Divines published by Banner of Truth as well. But he's been largely one of the most central figures in the midst of all this chaos and confusion across this land, across the land. England, mainly England, Scotland also had its impact, but Ireland had its own kind of trajectory. It had its impact here, but somewhat different. But out of that crisis, you may look at what Henderson did in England. Some could look at it as a failure. I think that would be a mistake. Yeah, humanly speaking, we could say, Yes, Henderson was able to gather the Scots together to, to covenant before God, but unable with, with the south of the border because they didn't stick with the, West, uh, with the Solomon Covenant for very long. And it was tossed aside and within, generation, within a generation or two it was being burned publicly. Tossed aside as inconvenient. And all even to the point of being made illegal, as traitorous, treacherous. But we still have the influence of that mighty covenant that the Lord used, I believe, and the Westminster Assembly, which came out of the Solemn League Covenant. Those are the kind of blessings that can come out of crisis. The likes of Luther, the likes of Calvin, the likes of Knox. Can you t which one of them lived an easy life? Which one of them had good health? I don't have a list of all the ailments that John Calvin had. I could probably give you, it's probably easier to give you a list of the things that weren't wrong with him. If you know what I mean, he was a very, he was ill for most of his life, from what I can see. Um, John Knox was a, was a galley slave for, was it 18 months, two years, something like that? French galley slave. All of the saints that we're so blessed by in their testimony, they suffered, they suffered greatly. There's a sense in which Henderson suffered the most was probably 
disagreements among his brethren these last few years, but the blessings that came out of it, we still use. We're so blessed by the clarity and the precision of the Westminster. It's not the word of God. We've got to be careful with that. What it is and what it isn't. We've got to be careful what it is. A great blessing to the church, but it is not the word of God. It is not infallible. But it has been such a tremendous blessing to the church in terms of church government, in terms of true worship, in terms of catechizing and educating children. It's been used for hundreds and hundreds of years. And the influence, the influence it has had, so so often we can, you know, we want the latest book on Reformed theology and what would convince you of Calvinism. If you're new to the Reformed faith, get a copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith and read through it. Say, oh, I don't agree with it all. Well, have it. Read through it. Just because you don't agree with it now does not mean... I don't understand why people say, oh, I don't agree with it. Read things you don't agree with. Challenge yourself. Compare it with the Word of God. Is it biblical? Why did so many people believe this in the past? I don't know if anybody's got any questions there before we leave it. If you've got any suggestions for programs... You can email me, miguelfilms at gmail.com. That's the history part of it. Um, hopefully that's been an encouragement to you, and hopefully that'll... Just one example from history. And I think it's great to read, read history, read biographies. You can, you can learn from other people, other characters in history, and how they dealt with adversity. And you can go, I'm dealing with adversity now. I'm going through great difficulty and times of crisis, but the men of old have gone through these things. And any saint worth his salt has gone through incredible hardship, incredible pain. And sometimes even those closest to them, as we read earlier in Psalm 3 with David and Absalom, if you've got any, again, any suggestions for programs, we're probably going to spend a program or two going through the doctrine of justification by faith alone on Friday and probably Monday of next week. And Lord willing, um, we can flesh that out and look at these things. And I'm not saying that I'm not going to be doing critiques, but I think right now, this just seems to be the most pertinent thing. What can we learn? What can focus our eyes upon the Lord? Again, if you do want me to cover something, feel free to send it on. Um, I'm going to be trying to be selective. Um, be, I'll be a little bit freer, but I do, even though my exams have been put off for a while, then I, I don't know when exactly they're going to be set. I need to actually need to just basically keep studying. Um, I need to pretend like exams could be on in a week or two. I know they won't be with the coronavirus because this is going to go on for a while, but I need to kind of keep on it, especially Greek and Hebrew. 
it's actually kind of a blessing in some ways because if you, you almost don't know when the exam is going to happen. So hopefully that will the Lord will use that for his glory. Um, please keep in your prayers. Um, if you, anybody's not aware, I you know was supposed to be doing exams this week, but unfortunately wasn't able to sit them. And hopefully, hopefully, we don't have to be in quarantine too long, but we have to we have to deal with what we don't get frustrated with Twitter. I'm not saying don't be informed. Do be informed. If you want, email me and suggestions of some people I get information from. Dr. Michael Osterham, who is uh, who is um, the director of the infectious disease uh, CIDRAP, CIDRAP, C-I-D-R-A-P. I get a lot of my information from him, and he's been calling out this for, not a Christian, by the way, but just from a, a medical and scientific point of view the whole coronavirus thing, and also um, Dr. John Campbell, and I haven't really found anybody else that's really that helpful. The media is like saying, it was reporting everything. A lot of false stuff, some true stuff, some false stuff. There's panic. Everybody's panicking. And it's hard to find good information. This is not something to be ignored. This is something to take seriously. But at the same time, may it draw us to our knees as we, let's just see now. I mean, people were ha spreading around a kind of comparison how many pe people died from abortion. But abortion is a horrible, horrible reality that how many nations around the world butchered or but your children, is it what, something, 9 million babies are murdered every year? It's just a horrible, horrible statistic. And how, how do we expect anything else but the judgment of God? But also at the same time, that kind of a comparative, it was comparing all sorts of people, who, you know, and at the time it was 21,000 people that died from COVID-19. That was only a few days ago. It was Dr. Michael Brown's thing. As of right now, as of the recording of this program, as of 46,785. In the UK, there's a, in the last 24 hours, well, as of 5 p.m. yesterday, the, the 24-hour period, there were another, I can't remember the exact number, it was just a little bit over 500 people died. And this thing's going to get far worse. This is not to scare you into fear and terror. This is, if, it's, if it scares you into any, it may drive you to your knees and see your dependency upon God. It's very easy to be brave if we pretend all this stuff is happening, isn't happening. It is happening. And it, it is unsettling. And you wouldn't be human if you weren't at least a little bit unsettled and unnerved. Don't, don't buy the people who pretend, you know, like, I'm so tough, I don't mind, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, don't be ruled by it. Be comforted in the word of God. It's hard to be balanced at times like this. We have responsibility to our community to not spread on this virus in any way we can. But at the same time, 
there's going to come a time when many of us are probably going to have to get back to work and all that kind of stuff. Otherwise, how are we going to put food on the table? And there is that juggling thing. I think it's probably going to be in the short term, lockdown for could be a few months, two or three months. But hopefully by that point, there'll be a lot more testing. There'll be a bit more in the direction of what South Korea did and more precision and then only having, because this, in all likelihood, this isn't going to go away anytime soon. What? It's not saying that the Lord won't. What? How might the Lord? Maybe this is the thing that the Lord wants us to, to drive us out. Wow, this is all happening. And the church fasting and praying around the world, not just our own denomination, but on its knees, weeping before God, asking for forgiveness for our nation, for sinning, for turning its back, for spitting upon the covenant with God. for being in rebellion against God. What else can we expect? If our nations will not turn to God, if we will not turn to God, what else can we expect but the wrath of God? Dear friend, if you're listening to this and you don't know Christ, it doesn't matter how good of a life you may have lived, if you are not trusting in Jesus Christ, you are currently under the wrath of God, the wrath of Almighty God. Because he is righteous, he is just, he is holy, and you have broken his law. But only in Christ Jesus, only in him and in him alone can you have hope. Because he has obeyed the law in every single point and obeyed it for those who trust in him and in him alone. This has been Paul Flynn. May God bless you all.